Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. This time I'm delighted to welcome on the show one of Britain's leading political pollsters, Damien Lyonslow from Servation. I know polling information very often comes up in both what I write and I know a lot of listeners have been very interested in previous shows where we've discussed polling. So really looking forward to delving into political polling with you, Damien. Welcome to the show. Very pleased to be here. Thanks. Now, what got you into political polling in the first place? Because it's quite a, those of us who are interested in it can get quite obsessed about it, but it's obviously a little bit of a niche. So what got you into it originally? So I've always been into politics. So just as a something that I was interested in, um, uh, I had a job in in research relating to uh, investment banking, worked for investment banks. I worked in research. And as a hobby, I was doing things like trying to predict the results of reality TV shows. <laughs> Excellent. By building opinion panels that had similar demographics to the watchers of those shows in order to predict who was going to win the program. So um, things like The X Factor or Big Brother. So really kind of difficult election types of things. So, so if you take the Big Brother example, uh, every week there'd be an eviction, which is like an election. At the end of the week, it would be vote for your favourite or vote for the person you want to be evicted. So they you know, could be either of those two, two methods. Yeah, the, the rules might change midweek. Mm. Uh, you'd need to redesign your question format. It was you know, very sort of very difficult because you, you didn't know exactly what the demographics of the, of the voters were. So you have to try and work out a way to work that out. So that was a sort of a hobby that I had. And so I was publishing um, on a, as a blog that was predicting these types of elections, these public votes. And then around about 2010, thought, well, could this could this hobby, which had then included the 2010 general election, I think, could this hobby be um, a business? If you if you're really interested in this, could it be something that you're more interested in doing than than working in uh, research and investment banking? And the answer was yes. So that's that's how Salvation was born. It is. I wonder if it's a coincidence or a trend that I was just listening to a podcast the other day from a couple of people who run a really successful YouTube channel where you can watch them uh, doing Sudoku puzzles, which may sound a rather weird thing to watch on YouTube, but it is surprisingly mesmerising hearing them talk through how they're you know, beating beating the best of Sudoku puzzle setters. Um, but at least one of them, and possibly both of them, also used to be investment bankers and then decided to switch to something else. So I don't know what it is about investment banking that drives people to niche activities that involve involve numbers, but not banks. Yeah, so I guess I was a, ho- I was a hobbyist pollster and I always was interested in, in politics. There aren't always elections to test things out in, um, but if there are other things like if you wanted to predict who was going to win sports, BBC Sports Personality of the Year, how do you do that? It's not just a case of, for example, if you take that as an example, Sports Personality of the Year, it's not just a case of asking the general public who they think should win Sports Personality of the Year because not all the public are watching, not all the public will vote. So you've, you've got a turnout question, you've got a, it's a, a demographic question as to, as to what, you know, what's the voter model look like. It, it's, yeah, it's, it's the sort of thing, that, it's the sort of skills that, that you you need for political polling um and there was just so much material things that you could try to predict and think about getting things right and wrong and Uh, and i guess i don't know if this applied to yourself but i guess one of the attractions must be that a lot of those contests are ones that there are betting markets around so if you are able to refine a little bit of a polling model there must be it does make me wonder how many people there are 
around the country, therefore, who are quietly as a hobby, maybe slipping questions into omnibus polls from polling companies to be able to fine tune their betting. Yeah, I think I think sadly most of these things have have, have gone away because I mean, there was a there was a there was a, a series of uh, I'm a celebrity, get me out mm-hmm. of here, where the the voter model was was showing that uh, David Guest was going to do very well, and the ITV managed to lose all his text votes. And he was he was booted out of the jungle um, very early. The the inquiry into that meant that that there was no more texting ever on on voting shows on ITV, and they just sort of became something that was, you know, just seen as um, as as not very fair on the viewers. Mm-hmm. And so the you know, X factor has been dropped, and but there aren't that many uh, sort of live voting shows left oh, left what anymore. A shame. So. So yeah. you've driven to political polling. as a <laughs> And I, I guess I know the answer to this, but for listeners who are less familiar with your work, what's been your best moment as a political pollster since you took that up seriously? Yeah, so for other people, the best moment is, is the 2017 general election where there's a sort of tired Damien on the, B, on the BBC being interviewed by Andrew Neil and the combination of me kind of stumbling with my words. I've got a mild stutter and I was very, very tired. They're all having a girl laugh at the pulse that's predicting a hung parliament. They think they just think the whole thing is hilarious. He's just done a segment about uh, about bookies mm. and, and bookies predicting um, elections with uh, Matthew Shaddock at Labrooks and it was all kind of a jokey thing. So they're having a bit of a laugh in the program and then they brought on the pollster. Isn't this funny? It's the pollster. This, this one's the outlier pollster. Let's have a laugh at him. They brought in Deborah Mattinson to sit next to me to have the counter view that, that said to say that the Hong Parliament prediction was an outlier uh, and then to sort of have a bit of a chuckle at my prediction, which was probably going to be wrong because everybody else was was not predicting that. So wouldn't that, wouldn't that be a fun item and then they could get them back afterwards? And either way, it would be funny, right? Because if I was right, that would be hilarious. And if I was wrong, that would also be pretty funny. But it would be the joke would have been at my expense. That's probably... Uh, what other people's best moments about me, but I don't have any fond memories of that at all because the whole thing was just really, really unpleasant. And I, I wrote a chapter in one of the books about the um, uh, about the election, about just how unpleasant it is to be um, the outlier in a general election and how it's just, it just for, for so many ways, it's not a very happy place to be. Mm. And that it's so unpleasant being potentially the you know, the only person that's wrong in a in an election or the, the most wrong that through through nat through through natural means and so either by fiddling around mm-hmm. so herding or by it just affecting your subconscious and and changing the way that your critical thinking works um you it, it can have a, an effect of, of making the, the the predictions for elections more inaccurate because you know in statistics you need things that fall outside the um if, if every pollster makes a prediction in an election so some of those predictions should be should be pretty outside the um yeah because it's it's the, quite the a error. it's a really difficult judgment isn't it if you come up with an answer to something even if it's a qualitative thing if a group of people are discussing a topic you now around a table if you got an answer or a point of view that is significantly different from everyone else it's a very fine line between this is brilliant I'm the genius I've spotted something everyone else has missed versus I'm an idiot if everyone else is saying something else don't be so up yourself you must be wrong 
and being out it, it in hindsight it's easy to spot which of the two was the situation but yeah. before the event before the revelation it's really hard isn't it that's my biggest worry about um polling in general is that there's a there's often an absence of critical thinking um people who are shouting the loudest are, are sometimes it's perceived to be the the people that have got things right in the moment mm. There are lots of people in, in the polling industry that, that I really respect that, that don't you don't really hear from very much. You tend to hear from um, people who really like to, to tweet and to use social media a lot. It's difficult for people to contextualize who they are. They, they might not have done many elections before. They might be really good academic. Political academics often aren't very good at understanding about doing data collection. It, it's difficult for the public to, to the public and, and the media to contextualize who is the person opining about polling and what's right and what's wrong and, and how to understand what they've got to say in the context of, uh, of other people? I guess a good example of that would be somebody like maybe Martin Boom, um, that if you, yeah, he's been one of the most innovative British pollsters over the last few decades in terms of particularly the stuff to deal with shy Tories in the aftermath mm-hmm. of the 1992 election. And, you know, he's he's quite a self-effacing person. Whenever I've heard him speak at things like political science events, he's quite often quite self-critical, but really smart. He's too, he's, he's, he's too, he's too self-critical. Yeah. I mean, he's almost self-destructingly self-critical. He's, he's just over, he's overly hard on himself. I mean, he is on Twitter and he uses it a little bit, but he's not, as you say, the sort of person who is appearing at the top of your algorithmic news feed every other day but no. definitely he's the sort of person where if he had if he's written something it's something that's m- much more worth right reading than than yeah some of the things that bubble bubble up to the top of twitter but that is maybe as much a feature of twitter as it is of polling yeah quite quite possibly but i think you know so if if you this is sort of the britain elects phenomenon as well mm. where britain elects has a huge huge following and there is, it doesn't really it doesn't really say whether it th- thinks that things are, are good or bad in a way that, say, Nate Silver tries to do, which we, we could discuss, but, I mean, mm. we don't necessarily need to. He, he, you know, he has this very complicated grading system for, mm. for pollsters, mm. and he tries to, every time that uh, he says he announces a poll result, you can look to see what his rating of that mm. pollster is. Britain Lex doesn't really do that. So it, it's quite easy to be a, a not very experienced pollster and... Um, be putting out your figures, being Britain elect, being Britain elected, and people just reading that, and that just sort of so it's not even coming from the pollster in that in that situation. So a lot of the things that people are seeing are just a set of numbers, perhaps a pollster name and Britain elects, um, and then I think that it, it's one step removal away from any kind of deeper understanding about what that poll means. Yeah, I think the thing that Britain elects and also other Twitter accounts like Election Maps UK, and I feel I need to mention both of them because there seems to be a little bit of some sort of falling out between them at some point in the past that I don't understand. So I'm not wanting to get caught in one camp or the other. But the thing's like the, the good thing I think that Twitter accounts like those achieve is that they there is a, a gr- it's a lot easier to therefore follow all of the polls that are out there. And so if you're following one or both of those accounts, you will see a much wider range of poll results than you would otherwise, because I think the risk otherwise is you just end up seeing the poll that's the outlier, because that's the one that then gets the most attention and gets the media mentions. And for all that journalists know that there are such things as outlier polls, 
and after a election or a journalism conference talk about the problems of only reporting outliers the moment an outlier lies you know lands in their email inbox <laughs> they all yeah, they nonetheless can't almost can't help themselves rushing to report it so i think there are definitely good things about that but as you say it strips a lot of context um, away in a way that i'm always struck by the comparison with football results so i'm not a huge fan of football you know occasionally pay attention like if England team is, be, is doing particularly well but it's very normal with football results to see the last five results for a team as part of the coverage you know you see the the, the lines of WL and D's you know next to the team name that that sense yeah. of giving a bit of context to a result yeah. or to ha- or what a team's form is is really normal in the way that with polling and I guess this is maybe a criticism perhaps or suggestion that could be made about pollsters it's not only that the media or people like Britain elect don't add in that context you know it's similarly when Servation or anyone else issues a new poll you almost always will give the change figures based on your last poll but not that much context beyond that and so I wonder there's an interesting question that um uh diamard dcj i hope i pronounced that right asked on twitter um ahead of us recording this about what pollsters could do beyond the basic industry sort of self-regulation transparency requirements to help people better understand polling results and i wonder if there's something about providing greater context to their results i think providing providing some 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 perspective in 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 normal in in normal language i mean you you can you can write lots of technical requirements that so the, the BBC's discussed this. How can we better portray polls so that so in terms of things like accuracy, we we have a ruling that talks about the historical so a statement that we can make that is about the historical um, accuracy or inaccuracy of poll of polls. So rather than talking about you know sort of theoretical margin of error as being how accurate a poll is, we say well look historically political polls have been within these parameters. Uh, so that's how you should think about opinion polls. You can have a wider inaccuracy than a margin of error. But I mean, I don't think that that's not really helping too much. I think I think just if someone with experience at the polling company says something that is important for context context during the polls publication, that's probably about, that's probably about the, the most that that you could that you could do. So someone like um, like Kieran Pedley. Um, at Ipsos will we'll quite quickly say something contextually about a poll, poll release and that can be helpful. I, it's, it's, it's very difficult to, to say what other rules there could be uh, that could help. Um, and, and presumably one of the things that holds back pollsters a little bit from doing that is most of your polls are paid for by media outlets and in a way you don't want, you wouldn't want say the Servation Twitter account to essentially be rivaling the coverage for your client who's paid for the poll so that there's definitely a role as being a sort of a, a backup source of information in a way but you don't want the most interesting information to be on your twitter account because it's the client who's paid for the poll who's yeah there's there's, there's, there's always there's always that problem um, i think people people on twitter feel like they um the pollster owes, owes them a bunch of stuff mm. whereas we're we're just providing some transparency mainly in relation to a release that belongs to the client and it's their it's their narrative that they are pursuing i mean we're, we're, we're fortunate enough that we we don't get pushed around by our media clients as, as maybe we might have felt like we were 10 years ago we don't don't need to work with anybody we don't feel like we 
need to help them chase a story that doesn't that can't be stood up by the by the figures. So it's not like we're we, we're disagreeing with a narrative. Yeah, I, I mean, what what's an example of? I mean, what what are we getting at with this question? What's an example of a situation that that where things go wrong? Would you say the main problem with context? I think is that the way polls are reported is often with an up or down on the last comparable poll from yeah. that pollster, say plus one, minus two, whatever. And most of those changes are noise rather than signal to sort of borrow Nate Silver's yeah. uh, book title, as opposed to if you had, let's say, the latest poll figure come out. But what Kieran uh, Ipsos Mori does, partly because quite a lot of the polling that he's tweeting about isn't paid for by a media client, actually. He's, he's quite often doing Twitter threads about the non-evening standard polling Ipsos Mario. He, he's always immediately providing graphs that put that latest number, not just in the context of change from last time, but the last six months or the last year. And I think that makes it easier to see where, well, this just looks like it's similar to the noise that we've had before, or whether it's, oh, this really is either a rogue poll or it's yeah. part of a trend. Yeah. So I, I've, I've, I've been encouraging the team to include a time series on voting intention as standard. Also, if, if you're talking about government approval or best prime minister or you know, how is the politician, to what extent, are they, are, they, are they doing a good job as, uh, in their role as X? I've been encouraging to use time series more because that, that helps a lot. Mm. And you can see time series are very interesting because you can see a lot of variation in things like approval. Mm. Uh, there's a lot of up and down. So the extent to which that's important or not, you know, so, so using it, so a, a simple answer might be yes, using a, a more long-term time series to contextualize things would be helpful. Yeah. Saying things like, this is the lowest ever approval rating for such and such, right? That sounds really exciting, but that, when you look at the, what that actually means, it doesn't mean an awful lot sometimes. Yeah, and, and, and obviously the other problem is that often the, the meaning comes from comparing different pollsters. And yeah. You know, that basic economic model of British political polling, where it's a media outlet is commissioning the, a poll. For all that we would love journalists to report stories as well as possible, we also have to recognise that if a media outlet has paid for a poll, it's unlikely to then run a story that says, actually, you know what, this isn't really telling anything interesting. Or, you know what, this is out at kilter with several polls that media rivals have recently commissioned so you probably should pay more attention to them than to our poll you know that's just yeah it's not the natural dynamic of the the yeah. business model that underpins political polling is it no i mean i i think that things have improved somewhat i mean if you take for example the, the last uh scottish elections uh we work with lots of different media clients uh let's take one issue so take the issue of alba right so alba pops up during the campaign it's it's become very politically important to work out whether Alba's going to get any um, uh, any seats at Holyrood. We we were never asked to for anything else apart from our expertise in working that out, and so we 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 made the decision to really kind of play a straight bat with Alba to sort of not use any kind of run-ins with words to say oh you know Alba's now standing you know how how might you vote with your uh, your, your second vote at Holyrood or sort of unduly prompting them. So we, we thought that, well, typically, if, if we think that someone's going to get difficult to difficult call, more or less than 5%, you, you may or may not want to include them in a, in a voting tension prompt. Anyway, regardless, the Scottish newspapers that we work for allowed us to just, just do what we thought was best. And it, it 
said that Alba wouldn't get any seats um, because of the way that we had had done that. There were other, some other polling in that example that, that that did things slightly differently that showed Alba achieving some seats at the time using slightly different prompting. But we, we were essentially sort of left to uh, not drive a story one way or the other, and that was that was good. That's certainly reassuring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, um, I guess in all of this, there's an assumption that the detail of the polls matters down to the level of what's the few percentage point one way or another that it might make a difference depending on how you word the question and whether you prompt with a party name or not. But we are thinking about Westminster elections, possibly several years away from a general election. I guess yeah. it's possible there will be a botched cabinet reshuffle and Boris Johnson ousted <laughs> maybe this year. But I, I, you know, one should perhaps put a fairly low, but maybe non, not zero probability on that. So most likely we're a something like a couple of years away from a general election. Do you think what the polls are saying at the moment <clears throat> really matters? Is it is it something that people like me just get too obsessed about and pay too much attention to? Well, not really, because it, it seems like po- politicians and political parties are all in, are all obsessing about any kind of data source mm. that, that says you know, what, what may be happening at the next election, which is so important relative to all their jobs and their lives. They do obsess about it, and they and and it, and it creeps out into the, their behaviour, that the way that they set policy. If a party's doing badly in the polls, they it, it tends to affect the way that they talk about themselves internally. I mean, when, you know, when we have a, a jolly poll for Labour, fads and and activists will come in and say, you know, do you really believe these figures? You know, because it's, you know, it's really sort of you know, it's it's a it's a big cheer up for them internally. They, they, they are all looking at political polls. So they, they, they have become important. If they didn't exist, the party will be using some of their own internal polls, which they all have. And it's quite interesting that uh, the Labour Party's now got a, a sort of pollster. Um, we mentioned Deborah Mattinson mm. earlier. She is, is known for running focus groups particularly. Mm. But her role as uh, the, strategic, uh, the strategic role that she has within Labour, where that hasn't been a kind of a technical polling person before, is really interesting. So in the sense that if, if we listen better and understand the public more, then that's, that's the, the secret to winning. Certainly the Conservative Party, they are doing lots of polling all the time. They're polling constituencies by telephone. Uh, they're doing lots and lots of focus groups as well. Huge amounts of focus group work. So I think... There's a lot of internal usage of polling, and I think that every, everything has a lot of meaning within this this sort of angsty bubble that, that we're living in. At least the advantage of polling is that it is capturing the views of the public, that the, the way into some of those internal political discussions, the way the public can influence them in many ways, is via via what they tell opinion pollsters, that, because that that has an influence on small meetings between senior politicians in a way yep. that otherwise it can be very hard to to exercise some influence over yeah i suppose my my, my number one bugbear about polling at the moment is that so that the, so there's a there, there's a national debate about what our policy should be relating to to covid for example and the public could look at a poll from a pollster so so you guys probably the most active mm. pollster in relation to government mm. policies on um, on COVID and what they should be. If you if you say in a poll something like uh, the the governments believe that this policy will be uh, helpful because of this reason, do you support or you know if that's the kind of the general sense of the question, 
do you support or oppose this policy which might help keep us a bit safer right essentially you're getting huge supports for almost anything i mean you could probably say ridiculous things and and people would would support them now if we if the public are really worried about covid and also hugely supportive of public health and the nhs i i would suggest i want to suggest that polling public opinion on these things isn't a very good way to to decide what the policy should be from a public opinion standpoint because it it feels like people will generally want to agree with or support almost anything and i think you've seen some some really weird polls from uh, just Murray and, and and for you Gov, about about sort of things that people would like to ban in the public interest or not have yeah, or like banning um, nightclubs yeah just not having nightclubs uh one was sort of it might have been written poorly but um it seems to be supporting it a generalized ongoing curfew in the interest of public health <laughs> well I, I i suspect what part of what that captured was the way in which people treat opinion polls not as a specific legalistic exam question. So my favourite example of this was a poll ahead of the 2016 US presidential election, where supposedly a third of young Americans would rather a huge meteor crashed into the earth killing millions than have either Clinton or Trump as president. Reputable pollster, proper sampling, proper weighting, all of that. And I'm pretty confident that the issue wasn't how the poll was done, the issue what and also that the answer isn't that there were loads of Americans who really were happy to contemplate the death of millions but actually it's people treating it almost like an expressive bit of fun of well look if I really don't like either Clinton or Trump yeah of course that's the answer the pollster's giving me and I I think you know like are you in favour of a permanent 10pm curfew or not there's a bit of there are lots of reasons why you might say yes without necessarily actually thinking if I was sat in Parliament and there was one vote in it and it was my vote, I would vote for this. Yeah. So um, <laughs> we've also got this sort of very, very. Fa- so the other part of your question is, you know, it's a long time out. Mm. What the what you know, what difference do political polls make? And I said, well, you know, the, the parties that they're always watching these things. Da, 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 da. I think. We're really into the unknown in terms of a government and a pandemic. We, we, we really don't have any precedent for what future might be for political public opinion when there isn't a pandemic. Or maybe there always is a bit of a pandemic. Maybe we, don't, we never really manage COVID. It's always bubbling around the background. And maybe that's... But I, I, would, I would contend that hopefully COVID policy will become less and less important as, as it relates to political vote. So as as the sort of COVID, COVID and pandemic related link becomes uh, less strong in relation to, to political attitudes, how will people behave then? We we really don't know. We we have no precedent for this, right? I always think about the the Second World War. I think well, we had this wartime government and uh, people accepted uh, Churchill leading the national government because it was a crisis. But once we'd seen the back of the Second World War, they they wanted um, they wanted a, a left agenda. They wanted uh, um, lots of home building. They wanted the NHS. They, all these sorts of things, right? It was like thanks, thanks very much. You're the wartime president, the wartime prime minister. Goodbye. Now we want something different. I feel like that's my only comparable. I don't really think that's particularly comparable to to what's going on now. And maybe it, maybe it will be. Maybe it won't be. I don't know. Mm. So it's it's a it's an it's a, it's another unknown on top of all the other normal intra um, election unknowns. To what extent will this stuff be important? 
Does anybody care about what uh, Keir Starmer's policy is on, on building homes that he may or may not announce in a year's time or something, right? Is anybody listening? I, 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 I think that a lot of people aren't listening at the moment, but they, they certainly will be listening at some point uh, between now and then. Yeah. And I think public opinion is really important because we, I'm not sure what else we've got, right? What, what, else do we, what else do we have? I take the point about how the 1945 election result really shows that switch from what do we want during wartime to what do we want post-war time and therefore mm. people could both think that Churchill had been a good war leader and they didn't want him to still be prime minister yeah. although in fairness to your predecessors as pollsters I guess I should point out that if you look at the Gallup polls but in that were carried out in sort of 43 44 and early 45 they had the Tories on I'm just looking at the figures here between 28 and 37 percent so they consistently had the Tories at a very clearly a losing vote share and the mistake yeah perhaps back then was people didn't pay enough attention to polls. There, were, <laughs> there was a clue from the polls uh, right. that, that, that got overlooked. But but you mentioned that point about the impact they can have on the morale, even if there is this point that, yes, we know politics is likely to change to some extent before the next election, that an individual poll result or runner poll results can definitely impact morale here and now so if you see a surprise poll result come out you know if maybe you one morning you hear that oh, another pollster has got labor up five percent which at the time of recording would sound like oh quite out of kilter with other polls at the moment what are the sorts of things you look for to think oh is there something really up here or nah that's just a slightly weird weird result or maybe yeah something that we shouldn't expect to see reflected in our own next set of figures. So a lot of polling results are very, very similar. So that, that almost, that's almost never happening these days. It, it's, it's normally happening in a case where there's something new going on, where uh, something, something strange is happening. So bigger changes are normally to do with other things that are not to do with say waiting or, you know, it, it's often, it's often to do with the, the, the way that the questions have, have been constructed and asked. If you go back to the Alba example, there was a there was a pollster that had a, a higher figure, and the way that they displayed Alba was was more uh, more obvious. It was, it was higher up. It was given more prominence than we would have norm normally. So I, I looked into that. You know, why is why they got Alba so high? They they'd made them them very prominent in the way that they'd asked the question. I think that probably affected some some of the responses. It's not so so. <laughs> Changes, changes or wacky results that then they're normally to do with the way that questions have been asked mm. is, is your normal kind of first stop. So you would need to go to the, to the table to, to work that out. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I used to obsess more about these sorts of things, but I, I obsess less apart from it if it's, in, if it's election time and then I'll be looking a bit more closely. And, and if it is election time and maybe... Maybe, you know, you're looking at one of a new poll that you, you're preparing and you, you're looking at the data and it's out of kilter from what others are saying. Is there anything in particular that you would then think to double check? There's no sort of golden rule about the, the, the things that you use as weighting criteria. So sometimes uh, which, which past votes are you uh, weighting by? So there's not like a necessarily a, a, a rule as to which ones you might need to use. If you take, for example, in constituency polling, one of the problems that we have when we're deciding like what, what are the results for a Hartlepool by-election poll, 
when we would normally uh, weight the results by a pass vote, by pass vote, but um, uh, we can see that from the way that we've done the poll, people are not remembering correctly. In our, it doesn't look like they're remembering correctly how they voted in the past. So do we do that or not? So we might uh, look at different ways of weighting the data. And in, 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 in most cases, we try to opt for the way, the way we tend to have a bias towards using weighting methods that, that change the data the least from the, uh, from the, from the raw data. So we, we're trying to not do too many weighting changes. So one of the things that we, that we would always worry about is overweighting data. So you can say, well, like, you know, I want, I want it to be weighted in, in terms of all these different target, target criteria. If the effect of those weights is that you're, you're changing the data a lot and, and you set, you set limits to the amount of which any response can be, Upweighted, so it doesn't become like a, a ridiculously large amount of your sample. But we look at we look at the ways that the different ways that you might weight, and if the way that you're choosing to weight the data appears to be having a making lots of changes to the to the the, the raw data, that's the, that's the sort of question mark for us. And presumably that means that there's a risk that because your constituency polls have had quite a good run in by-elections haven't they mm. um, but there's a risk therefore that one day you will just by bad luck of sampling get a sample that's rather off mm. and your parsimonious approach to waiting will not rectify that in a way that other pollsters who are more heavy-handed with their waiting they have a different risk that they run which is that a change in political circumstances or the like catches them out and they're waiting you know pushes the figures off in a, in a wrong direction because they're trying to wait to something that's now wrong but but I guess the risk for you is that every now and again there'll be a sample that's just off yes absolutely uh and, and also um on the phone on, you know going back to constituency polls on the, on the phone it's it's very difficult to get a correct or balanced amount of young people to answer a survey within the, the time period Getting contact data for, for people within a constituency is like an, like an inverted, inverted pyramid. It's really easy to get the contact data for, for the, the older and older people get, and to, but to try and get the, the correct, correct balance or, and representation of 18 to 24s in a constituency poll is almost impossible. And we've looked at combining like online and, and phone, but we, what we tend to normally do is just, just deal with the fact that we might have to only have 50% of the target that we're looking for amongst young people and try and work out what to do with that. Do you weight them up to the correct target, knowing that you've only got an, a small and possibly unrepresentative number of them? Um, it can be a bit of a judgment call. Yeah. All plenty to keep everyone on their toes and arguing yeah. why the next poll that favours their party is accurate or the next one that doesn't favour their party must therefore be inaccurate. But yeah, if um, people are interested in delving into learning a bit more about political polling and so on, is there anything you'd particularly recommend other than obviously following both of us on Twitter, but is there any, any, any reading or podcast recommendations you'd particularly give? Well, I'm, I'm probably a, 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 the wrong person to ask is the first thing I would say, because reading or listening too much about polling when that's something that you do all day is it's a, for me, it's a real, it's a real busman's holiday. I think mm. uh, <laughs> a couple of, um, so apart from, apart from this podcast, which of course, you know, you, you're having people like me on. So, uh, excellent recommendation <laughs> that's that's, 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 a, that's obviously a very good start um I, I find he doesn't blog very often but i find anthony wells pretty good yeah um, always have 
uh, you know, he gets in some slight, slight digs because he does work for YouGov um, about, you know, say, you know, the unreliability of telephone poles or that sort of thing. But um, UK polling report is is very good because it's it's um, he does a good job of being neutral. He does comment on things like house effects, which you've mentioned before. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's a huge back catalogue on UK polling report of of bad things that pollsters do. So like the the the, the bad behaviour of, of polling, the types of questions that drive him mad. I sometimes use um, his rant about agree disagree questions as kind of internal training. So say, look, you say you really like internal agree disagree questions. Well. You know, read this read this blog by Anthony Wells where he you can get him banging the table about uh, acquiescence bias and, yeah. and 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 calling out um, statements that sound reasonable and then asking if you agree disagree with them and saying what well, yeah so there's a there's a really good back catalogue on UK poll report about things like bad polling questions the bad polling questions is probably the, the, the number one thing that will see you right uh, when you're looking around and, and deciding what you think about about polls. Because mm. uh, if someone's majoring on an agree disagree question about, you know, say strong leadership, you know, does 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 the UK want a strong leader as as, as prime minister? If that's the statement and it's written in an agree disagree form, there's lots of reasons to think that that's a really bad way to work out whether that does mean that the UK would like to be would like strong leadership from there their prime minister yeah it, so, it's um, a really good blog post that and i'll i'll include a link to it in the show yeah, notes. So the, i have so, the, so i've, I've yeah, read it then, closely myself a few times so yes it's yeah, it's it's, it's, it's very good it. it's very good and then the other the other person i'd probably um uh, hold up on that and he does have a podcast it's a bit irregular would be kieran kieran mm. pedley so kieran was kind of out out of political polling for a while because he was working for gfk and um wasn't doing any political polling yeah, probably made him pretty, pretty, pretty bored because he likes political, political polling. So to sort of keep himself going, he, he was doing this Polling Matters podcast and doing a kind of uh, neutral aspect on, on polling. Now he's polling again. He's, he's now doing a bit of that for Ipsos. And I think that, you know, again, it's someone who's been around at least, you know, feels, you know, feels like about 10 years, a bit like me, you know, they, they've, they've seen a few elections, they've made some mistakes, they've, they've got a bit of experience. And so they tend not to get you know, overly excited about things. There's always sort of a sense of perspective. So I, I feel like, um, yeah, here in normally says sort of sensible measured things. And it's one of the, it's, it's one of the few um, uh, podcasts where they talk about methodology and have a bit of critical yeah. thinking about it. There's not an awful lot yeah. of that. Which is which is really good. Yeah, right. and I think Kieran does nicely balance that. Most of the time, talking about how you shouldn't pay too much attention to any one poll, and then of course, when his employer has a new poll out, he has to <laughs> diligently plug that. But I think he does segue that tension between business model pushing everyone towards getting overexcited about one poll, whilst remembering really the understanding comes from looking at more than one poll. Yeah, so, and if I could just add one more. I find that when, when John Curtis is writing about polling methodology in Scotland, for example, it's usually a really worthwhile listening mm. to, especially, for example, so he, he's, he's, he's quite good at taking down pollsters in terms of, again, like bad, bad question construction. And an example would be putting independence in a list of priorities for Scots uh, in an attempt to sort of say that independence isn't actually very important uh, politically in Scotland because we we can construct this sort of importance of issues list 
we can find it at number five and say, well, look, these four things are much more important than independence. Why do the SNP bang on about independence so much? Well, he's, he's, he's good at sort of skewering those types of polling tricks that pollsters can do. So yeah, probably probably those those those, those three. But in terms of a resource, I think UK Poll Report's pretty good for um, having an opinion on most of the things that are good and bad at, bad in polling. Yeah, and I'll I'll include links to all of that in the show notes, including to the European polling uh, roundups that John Curtis writes. I think it's about every month or two months, which are I think one of the very few examples of somebody regularly looking at polling on an issue rather than on voting intention and doing a summary of what all the different polls to say and what yep. picture you can draw from that, which I think on the European issue is particularly important because question wording can massively alter the results you get. So having having a considered and methodologically well-informed roundup is, is, is really useful. If any other academics are listening, please somebody steal the John Curtis model and apply it to other policy areas as well. It would be great to have that. If there was as well-informed regular roundups about polling on, say, housing, that would become a, a must-read for political geeks very quickly, I'm sure. But thank you so much for that, Damien. That's been absolutely fascinating. Listeners who want to hear more from Damien can find him on Twitter at Damien Servation, myself at Mark Pack, and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. And do look out in the show notes for follow-up links that I've mentioned. And if you like listening please do tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. Thank you, everyone, for listening.